वेलकम टू सेंटॉक दॉकर्स अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द ऑडिशन ऑफ द ऑडिबल विल थिंक अबाउट ऑडिबल स्पीच एंड साउंड एंड इट्स लिंक्स टू सेंस मेकिंग इन द वर्ल्ड वट काइंड ऑफ अ प्रोसेस इज हियरिंग हाउ डिस्क्रीट इज स्पीच can speech be understood via the mechanic inertial properties of the vocal tract how is the ear put together why do we hear our own name even in a crowd is there a link between speech and higher cognition how does an abstract thought get produced physically in us how abstract then is hearing do the deaf feel vibrations do they hear something do we hear ourselves differently from the others what role do computational processes play and what are the open questions here that might tell us something deeper about the world we are pleased and privileged to have two sun talkers with us here today Professor Indranil Dotto he is a phonetician with interest in speech production he is currently at Jadavpur University in Kolkata and Dr Raj Lada he is a developmental biologist based out of NCBS in Bangalore his interest is in the formation of the inner ear So Raj why don't we set the ball rolling with you and we'll get to the year and the inner year which is your forte but for a second if you think of speech and what speech is this thing that impinges on the ear in some shape and form i'm sure it's more complex than that mm. from your vantage point what is it how do you think of it what is its whatness is it just vibration sound or should one have a more complex conception of it we'll start there and then maybe open other flanks as we go along so um yeah that's a that's an interesting question the speech has to be at the most basic level the most utilitarian level it's the sound uh, the breath is making as it passes through your pharynx shaped by your lungs and then uh, emitted through your mouth um it's vibrations in the air the frequencies are modulated the amplitude is modulated uh and um and these kind of uh, mechanics just you know, of course carry meaning which are received by the ear but uh i think that's all it is i mean when we go on to a more philosophical level what is speech of course um indranil will probably get to this in much better detail but um i i kind of want to just define it as that for the time being it's just um sound that we're making and and how does it hit us how does it come to us it comes to us in just vibrations in the air does it also come to us via our own body like does the vibration hit other parts of our body do we receive it only via this aperture which is the uh, opening or the outer ear 
Yeah. So um, yeah. So the so the sound is um, how localized the receiving or the reception of it. So the the sound kind of fans out from the source, like a speaker in a room. It will fan out, and it will, but it's only interpreted where there's a receiver, where there's a microphone, and so the you're right. It comes in through our outer ear. It vibrates, and it's coming as vibrations in the air. And it vibrates the eardrum, uh, which moves the middle ear apparatus. And so now we're transferring these vibrations in the air into kind of mechanical lever type motion, which is transmitted into the cochlea. Um, and the cochlea is fluid filled, and that's why you need a middle ear. There's an impedance match that needs to happen. And the vibrations are transmitted into the inner ear where they're then. Um, kind of basically transformed by the by the cochlea. It's fluid filled. You said the middle ear. Sorry, the inner ear is fluid filled, not the middle ear. Yeah. And what what role does that serve? So it's essentially um, the 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 inner ear or the no the the fluid there. Does it have anything to do with balance and so, so the, on? So the as well at the same the, time and yeah. what's the link between yeah. the two? So the inner ear does um, kind of measure. The acceleration due to gravity, uh, and so it's not balance per se. It's kind of how you respond to kind of changes in the speed that you're moving, um, where your how your head is tilting. Um, so the the vestibular apparatus of the inner ear does that. Um, the why does it do that? So this like is what's the evolutionary reason for yeah measuring acceleration due to gravity, or at least having a feel for where it stands on a calibrated scale. Yeah. So. The, I mean, I think it's uh, essentially just you know working out when you're slowing down, when you're speeding up, when you've been tipped over, when you've kind of um, on your kind of position with respect to gravity is, has changed, uh, and so that's why it's there, and that probably is the kind of evolutionarily primordial function of the ear, um, and so the way that balance or acceleration due to gravity is sensed is by the deflections of these uh, of uh, filaments of uh, of hair cells um, these filaments are made of actin uh, and when there's movement the uh, filaments which are called stereocilia bend and that causes an impulse right hmm. and is that where it gets converted into some kind of an electrical impulse yeah exactly and yeah and so when the when the stereocilia deflect uh, a channel opens on the top of the stereocilia and, and particular ions, in this case, calcium ions and potassium ions, flood into the hair cell and that triggers the electrical response that's transmitted to the brain. Interesting. And Ronil, what is speech for you? Um, for me, I think speech is, um, if I start from, you know, uh, articulation itself, hmm. uh, the biomechanics of the articulators, uh, so you have the tongue, the jaw, uh, the velum, the lips, all of these coordinate uh, to be able to make different types of sound segments. Is there a master coordinator? Is there a master coordinator? Um, not necessarily, unless that coordinator itself uh, was, was doing the job of making sure that these articulators uh, are, are articulated structures are put together in a way that they, they make meaningful uh, sound segments. So 
so when I say meaningful, what I mean is that uh, you need to be able to differentiate at the level of the sound for you to be able to attribute uh, meaning to it, right? So if you make a distinction between pat and bat, then you need to be able to basically stop vocal folds uh, from vibrating uh, when you're producing a purr, right? So, so there's some amount of coordination that takes place and so these coordinated uh, articulatory movements uh, lead So all to... articulation is premeditated, right? Because you have to, let's say, for lack of a better phrasing, you have to think it before you say it. Perhaps the gap is almost instantaneous or whatever. But... Yes, it's it's rather quick. So so there is motor planning. There is sufficient motor planning for, for when you are actually uh, planning, let's say, at a sentence level. Then you do have to plan out you know, what's going to be the next consonant, what's going to be the next vowel, and so on. And so the motoric instructions uh, kind of keep that in mind, that that there is a, you know, sequence of things that have to be produced. Uh, and notice that in most all languages, you would want to be, be able to produce things that are quite differentiated from each other, uh, because otherwise it would lose uh, sort of contrast. So maintaining contrast is important, because maintaining contrast leads to being able to differentiate at the level of the meaning. So the speech articulators are moving, they're changing the resonance properties of the vocal tract. That leads to a different kind of acoustics for different types of sound segments. Uh, this relationship between uh, the... So it's a multi-organ kind of thing. It Correct. Doesn't, it Correct. Doesn't... Correct. Right. So, so there is hmm. sort of a coordinated movement of the articulators uh, and um, and the relationship between the articulatory and the acoustic parameter is non-linear, and they share a sort of a quantal relationship, if you will. Sorry, what relationship? So, like a quantal relationship. So, because right. of the fact that morphologically we are all very different, uh, so we can't have a sort of uh, you know one-to-one -one mapping between the articulatory and the acoustic parameter. So, so when you say bat and I say bat, we the they're different. Things. Right, but they all map to the same they thing. They map to the same right? thing. So, so that happens at the level of the auditory perception. But in general, because morphologically, you know, we're we're physically different, that would lead to difference in the acoustics, right? Yeah. Uh, so somehow we but have... could it be the case that the way you articulate bat and I articulate bat somehow has different articulatory combination or it would be the be highly similar... The resonance properties are going to be quite different because of the fact that you know our tube lengths are different, our vocal tract lengths are different, and resonances mostly would be determined from the length of the tube. So, despite the fact that uh, we have differences in the acoustics, we are able to understand each other quite well, uh, and that's you know where the auditory perceptual system comes into play uh, to make sure that the variation that we see in the acoustics is not you know read in such a way that you think that these are two different things, right? So if you produce a bat and I produce a bat which is different in the acoustics, the job of the auditory perceptual system is to make sure that it's not perceived as such. And how different is uh, the speech production of bat versus me just thinking of bat? Um, and, you know, so I don't end up producing it. I don't articulate it, but I just think of bat like I just did, you know? So now at the level of perception, is it exactly the same from a point onwards? Like, you might know this, Raj, what's happening, you know, this place where calcium and potassium and so on were taking on from where the hair cells are. Mm. Like, wherever perception starts, I'm, I don't know if there's a hard point or there's a gray zone or whatever. 
हाउ इज परसिविंग रिसीव्ड स्पीच और आर्टिकुलेटेड स्पीच डिफरेंट फ्रॉम परसिविंग द थॉट इटसेल्फ इन द स्केप इफ इट्स ऑटोटेलिक आई मीन आई आई गेस दैट्स आई एम लुकिंग एट इंद्रनील आई गेस दैट्स द प्रीमेडिटेशन आई मीन समहाउ वी कैन थिंक बैट और वी कैन थिंक बैट इन वटएवर लैंग्वेज बट वी से बैट आई मीन आई आई हैव प्रीमेडिटेटेड बैट द सेम एज द hot bat which is not articulated i don't know um right so so there are obviously mechanical inertial constraints so when you're actually producing something you'll be constrained with you know uh, the physics of it all but i think what we are slowly starting to see is that how we actually silently perceive things is not so outside of how we actually act in the world that we inhabit so therefore uh, i would want to think that the way that we actually produce you know bat the same kind of uh, you know the parts of the brain that help you actually produce it also help you perceive it and so yes i would think that if you you know perceive bat then at the same time notice that when you are also saying it uh, there is a sort of a feedback loop that you yourself have right the fact that you have actually accomplished having produced bat right so you plan to produce bat and did you actually do that yeah uh, well, there is awareness of those stages of right thinking right. about so, something and then right. even if it's a kind of subarticulation or whatever yeah right experimentally this is what we end up seeing is that if we in real time make uh speakers produce things and then in real time make them sort of change what they produce right so then we start to see that they make articulatory adjustments because they they know that they didn't they hear themselves and they think that oh i didn't actually produce that right so let's say that made you hear a uh, man or i i asked you to produce man and then as you started to produce man i auditorily i presented your speech to you and you heard a pan right then the subjects will start to uh, basically lower their velum uh even further right so so they'll start to make articulatory adjustments because they they know that they didn't end up producing what they were expected to so does that make sense yeah is there a yes or no answer to um so so your point is that the production of speech and the perception of speech is kind of happening in the same part of the brain yes part of it so the motor planning part Uh, is something that is because it's it happens so fast so if you look at an average length of a vowel in speech in fast speech or even regular speech it probably won't be anything more than you know 50 to 100 milliseconds which is really really quick right. uh, and you wouldn't be able to linearly process it if you didn't have anticipation for what's to be expected so so the same way you know you you plan out how you're going to do the next consonant next vowel and so on uh, and you keep sort of validating your as you're hearing you're making sure that you're hearing what you had actually planned and so on uh, but you can disrupt that process i mean experimentally you can it's almost parallel almost yeah are there clues uh, to this question rajan and maybe from any studies that may have happened in the deaf or people who, who went deaf after a certain point in time in life yeah yeah so definitely there's um i mean profound deafness can happen before the onset of speech and after the onset of speech mm. and uh, of course deafness is associated with kind of the in- inability to kind of articulate 
Um, whereas postlingual deafness, um, generally speech articulation is more or less okay. But uh, then does it get impaired over several years? It, After one has, even I, in the postlingual deafness, if one ends up spending 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah, so so it depends on when the postlingual deafness onset happened. I mean, if it happens kind of in the Actually, it's after puberty. If it happens after puberty, then generally it doesn't get so impaired. I mean, uh, you can't make the adjustments that Indranil was talking about, but uh, more or less um, speech is okay. The studies that have, have happened are, of course, with um, cochlear implants as well. So you can give even deaf people who are prelingually deaf um, cochlear implants. Even there, the speech doesn't come back. There does seem to be a critical period for articulation. Yeah. Why is that the case? I, I mean, I think... Like uh, at a somewhat deeper level, what role does speech play? Um, and even, I don't know again whether there are clues in the developmental biology world that you uh, inhabit in terms of when it comes to be uh, just the formation of the year and so on. What, is that, what does that coincide with? Yeah. Is there something deeper here? So, I mean, there could be. I mean, the fact that even after you're born, kind of the pathways need to strengthen, the, the way that these pathways interact, so I'm talking about neuronal pathways interact, needs to strengthen and, and be used. Right. And, you know, the old adage in, in neurobiology, you know, use it or lose it, really applies here as well. And so I think some of it is that, I mean, the ear, of course, is, um, forms very early. Um, and so, when about like in, in a in a in a human within within the first two three weeks of gestation, the ear is there. Um, interestingly, it forms at the same time as the heart, um, and so they they form in more or less the same same place. The heart is on the other side of the of the embryo, ear is on the top, um, but uh, but the ear is there pretty early. The inner ear is there pretty early. Um, but the, this is like the very, very early, I mean, it doesn't hear at that point, right? It doesn't hear at that point. Um, it, it starts hearing at some somewhere in the kind of early third trimester in, in humans. Um, but of course, the hair cells, the kind of sensory apparatus in the ear probably is able to respond even earlier than that. It's not able to perceive, I, we think. Um, so it's sending impulses to the brain. Very, you know, you can measure calcium flows and calcium fluxes from the inner ear, but what happens in the brain is somewhat disorganized. So I think what we're really wanting is to understand when organized perception, organized transmission of kind of mechanical information that's coming into the cochlea um, and is transmitted to the brain, and that's maybe the onset of hearing and how these then pathways which process speech work um, is still a, a big mystery does it happen pre-birth like um, so the again it's not does it like at least pre-birth is it all just sound or it's almost like speech there's no sense making going on prior to that i presume because that's the is that a post-birth phenomena? What happens? So, so there's a there's some sensory input happening pre-birth. I mean, the 
Babies are known to be attuned to the mother's heartbeat even right. within the womb. Um, whether speech is kind of processed as speech, um, pre-birth or soon after birth, is kind of a probably the question that you're asking. That um, I would say no. I would say that it, it takes it takes a little while for kind of this you know the speech centers the the ways to recognize speech to develop to kind of um, to build their connections to kind of um, root the appropriate pathways and then you see that in a in a kid's first uh, you know ba ma um, kind of vocalization that associational phase where you yeah. start putting nouns and yeah, things yeah. and so yeah. on and yeah would you agree indonil like even when when and how does uh, sound become speech how was that link between that and meaning and sense making yeah i think i would agree um, also the medium i mean you know we tend not to speak in fluid right so uh, we are mostly uh, you know if you if you're ever inside a swimming pool you can kind of make sense that people are talking but it's still harder the uh, you know to to decipher actually what's being said right so in some ways i think the fact that we speak in air that that obviously matters a lot our systems are built i think for that um yeah and uh, we tend to uh, you know one of the things that you may have read about heard about proprioception so that the yeah. ch- the children's ability to be able to actually start to uh, make gesticulations as if they're speaking and i mean i i always think about it this way that if if indeed uh, human babies were um, uh, you know uh, genetically predisposed for language uh, it must be terribly frustrating for you know babies to be able to perceive all the languages in the world but not being able to utter anything right uh, so <laughs> so i i keep telling my students that it's it must be really frustrating no wonder they are always crying because you know they're <laughs> you know they're they're genetically predisposed they can make out the differences of all the all the different types of sounds that exist in uh, different languages uh of course since they don't use the neuronal uh pathways for let's say if you take a, if you take a child from here uh who is a marathi speaker can make a distinction between a p p b b um and take this child to let's say new york when they are about you know let's say 6 months old then they would slowly lose the ability to be able to make this distinction because of the fact that the language that they would encounter would not have these sounds so in as, that case what exactly is lost is because the same sound waves are impinging and going all the way to the inner ear and so on right it's so, the pathways that so so what uh, what raj was talking about is that you know the neuronal structures that are sort of built uh, to help you different help you know the child differentiate between these different uh, sound segments uh, become basically meaningless because you know it's just uh, hardware that you have you know a sign for making a distinction that you don't encounter in your the language that you're surrounded by so then you start to overwrite uh, those you start to you know make different kind of pathways and are these almost like permanent losses or like if this child were to come back uh, from new york at the age of 16 i haven't gone there at the age of 6 months i think this papa baba comes back or I mean, so what exactly are these neural pathways are these they atrophy they they gone you can pick them back up uh, i know you referred to puberty a little while ago i don't know whether there's a link of sorts between 
Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Not sure. I, I know what the link is. Uh, maybe someone does. Um, but but uh, so definitely the ability, as as Indranil says, to kind of distinguish kind of um, language specific sounds kind of is lost. But there's a you know there's a chance that it will come back if the child is reintroduced to that within the critical period. And I think it is. But does anything happen to the auditory apparatus before the brain, or it remains? No, no, no. Everything is post-processing. And also, like, we inhabit different languages, are different kinds of soundscapes, and linguistically and so on, which is exactly what you're saying. Are the vocal tracks also different across languages? Like, morphologically, do they end up having... I know they're all, every single vocal tract is different from the other in, their, in the sense that they're unique and you refer to windpipe being of different length and this and that. But structurally, uh, if, if I was like, a, I don't know, a Nordic kind of speaker versus a Bhojpuri speaker versus a Japanese speaker, uh, the native speakers have been there forever and inhabited those, uh, those soundscapes and linguistic scapes. Does the vocal tract end up being different? Could they be distinguished very easily by an expert eye? Uh, I would, I would hope not, <laughs> uh, because uh, because of the because of the same reason that if I took a child who's you know, let's say hearing Bhojpuri, you know, for the first three or four months of their life, and then I took them to Finland, uh, it wouldn't matter; they would still pick up Finnish. So, so therefore, it's you know. For the sake of humanity, uh, it's a good thing that it is. It's uh, For the sake of humanity. <laughs> it's a good thing that uh, morphological uh, distinctions don't lead to necessarily differences in the in our linguistic ability, right? No, but uh, the ability to produce certain sounds and so on, the guttural sound in certain languages and all that—that's just it's it, it's it's all in the brain or the it's in the mind rather than in the in the physicality, physical apparatus. Yeah, it's the it's the physics of uh, you know getting a baseball player to play cricket. I suppose uh, it's right. a little, the game is a little different, but you know the ob- objective is still the same. So I think that people can adjust very quickly to something like that. It's not necessarily, I mean, yeah. So there is some notion that okay, you know, a couple of months or I think about six or seven months back, or you know, if you think about sort of tone languages, or why is it that tone languages only appear in certain types of geographies and so on? But I don't, at least personally, I don't uh, think of that as when well, that could. I mean, you know, people may find that interesting, but but I think mostly as as a linguist, I focus on our sort of remarkable ability to be able to use language uh, and speech, and that remains constant regardless of uh, the geographies. So therefore, I wouldn't think that, you know, there are specific types of people who have special abilities to produce certain types of sounds. Uh, they're mostly uh, distributed across uh, across geographies, and we all seem to have the same ability. And that's what sort of makes us human. <laughs> sure. I mean, the fact that people are taller or shorter and they're different skin tones and this and that, so that doesn't make them differently human. They just make them different. Uh, I think the question is whether... That kind of holds for the vocal tract, or whatever I, that means. If I may add, I mean, we seem to have neural mechanisms that help us um, adjust for that, right? Adjust for differences, right? So, so we are so keyed in on wanting to, uh, you know, hear people, understand people, 
that we overlook a lot of that. So we have mechanisms within our speech perception system that help us overlook a lot of the, uh, for lack of a better word, noise that enters, uh, you know, uh, through the uh, through the medium or, you know, as you said, I mean, if if somebody's vocal tract is longer, then their, you know, frequencies would be generally lower. So we are able to compensate for all of that perceptually. So we are, we have a perceptual mechanism in place that constantly um, compensates for this kind of stuff, right? So that kind of tells you that it, uh, yes, at a physical level, at a, a level of the resonances, we do have differences, but those, you know, they get sort of united in the perception, right? So the perception basically takes a lot of varying acoustic information and then maps it onto one thing, right? So even if there was difference, which there obviously is, uh, there is a mechanism in place to uh, uh, see it as one. At least there's a kind of way in which several things are mapped onto like one. Correct. So there's semantically a semantically one kind of meaning. right. There's a many to one mapping. Many to one mapping. Right. So so if you think about a child, the child is encountering let's say about eight thousand vowels in a day, right? And they're all different resonances produced by their caregivers and so on, right? The ballparks. Frequencies are more or less the same, but they're still, every instance is basically its own instance. It's, it's totally instance, different. Yeah. So there already is a mechanism that does a many-to-one mapping, right? Uh, it's either probabilistic or, you know. What? Yeah, I was about to ask that. What do you think is the nature of that mechanism? What exactly is hearing? What exactly is this process of mapping from sound to meaning, sound to sense-making? Um, so there are many theories around that. Uh, the earlier theories by Patricia Kuhl, which is called the perceptual magnet. So you can think of a multidimensional uh, acoustic space in which these uh, sort of vowels inhabit. Uh, and let's say if you make a distinction, let's say between an E and an A, uh, then obviously what happens is that you encounter many, many E's and many, many A's throughout your day, let's say. Uh, but there's some sort of a sort of a magnet that's you know, attracts the ease, right? So if there is any deviation in the acoustics of that E because of the fact that it was producing a K, so let's say if you produce a E key versus a EP, then those E's tend to be different because of the fact that the articulatory adjustments are made for uh, sort for of... For different just kind of sounds following that. Correct, yeah. correct. So, so these variations basically happen because of contextual adjustments that the articulators have to make. Uh, and so the so the perceptual sort of magnet is one such theory which says that well if it's a little e-like then there's a sort of a centroid there's a magnet right which attracts this uh, and brings it closer to the categorical uh, boundary right so yeah no different from how you perceive of different kinds of reds as red and different kinds of blues as blue correct so if that instance for a variety of reasons is a little off uh, then it's sort of brought into the center of the category. Uh, that's one way of thinking about it. The other ways of thinking about it also, which are basically probabilistic, uh, that there's some kind of matching, right? And so, what do you think happens? What's the truth? What's the truth? <laughs> that's a very, very hard question. I think you promised me that you won't ask those. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> what do, uh, what do I, you think is the truth? Uh, what, I, are, what are some candidate? What would be your theory? Oh, I mean, I, I think that because like, is there something computational going on? Is there, is there, uh, what's your theory? I, I think acoustics is so variable anyways, it will be difficult to actually make categories based on that. So I think that 
the articulatory parameter and the acoustic parameter have to be thought of as in a unified manner. And what listeners are recovering, uh, is it's not a decoding process. It's not that I am moving my articulators because of which we have an acoustic disturbance that impinges upon your ears and you start to decode this acoustics into how it was actually produced, right? So you're trying to get into whatever my intended plan was, right? I feel that what tends to happen is that, you know, you're, you're not really hearing sounds. You're, you're hearing articulators move. What so, does that mean? Um, what that basically means is that, uh, you know, you, you hear them as a sort of a distant action, right? Uh, so when you are hearing quote-unquote sounds or speech sounds, right? So uh, as opposed to any other kind of sound, right? Uh, notice that human beings have the ability to do language and speech, which is sort of special at a species level for us. Uh, so there, therefore, we think that, oh, you know, we can differentiate between speech and non-speech, for example. Like it's, it's coming from a spectrum, right? But we know that this is speech and this is not. Uh, so what that means is that we we think specially about uh, speech. Therefore, uh, the the fact that there is a binding between the articulatory movement and what it does, right, in terms of a cause and effect, uh, we think that this sort of a cause and effect is a bundle. You you can't really analyze it in you know in series symbolically one after another, no matter how quick. Or is there a little bit of that? Right, right, right. Be- because of the fact that anyways, ultimately, you're going to have to recover how things were produced, right? For a child, it's important how to sort of coordinate their gestures, articulatory gestures to be able to produce this outcome, right? That's crazy, isn't it? So like if a child hears you say bat, going back to an old example, how does the knowledge of how to produce bat get transmitted to the child? I think Raj knows the answer. <laughs> how does the knowledge of how, because you know this yeah. this this complex interplay of uh, intention, all the soft stuff and all the hard stuff and different organs, etc., coming together to say bad. Now the obviously the organs may be of differing sizes and so on, but how does that knowledge get transferred? How do we share it somehow? How do we share the knowledge to? That's a, I mean that's a tough question. I mean, I, I'm trying to think how, how you would do that. I mean, um, I know how my brain would do that. But, uh, you know, the body almost does it automatically. I know that I want to say the word bat. Um, and I know that my lungs have to expand in a particular way to take in the air that is sent through the larynx. You know, the various bits of the of the larynx, the velum, the, uh, the tongue, the mouth, the lips. Uh, kind of controlled in a particular way to say the word bat. But I, I don't know whether that can be, this feels like it's instinctive, but maybe this is what babies do. I'm, I mean, when kids are learning to speak, they're making all the sounds, ba, ma, um, and they're kind of practicing how to make these sounds. What What does it mean for a biologist? And I'm not putting you in a camp or anything. Um, what does the word instinctive mean? I think at the level of mechanisms, that's in a way the question, right? Because yeah. if if one says, "All right," I just heard Indonil say, "Pat," and there's this like three-year-old child next to him who tries to copy that same utterance, and of course, there is a way in which you know whether you've said something that sounds similar. Mm. Um, but how do you get the knowledge 
of producing that sound uh, mm. i know you said it's instinctive but wouldn't there be like some genetic basis and some mechanism and something getting Is triggered like somewhere like some expression proprioceptive mechanism there there must be there must be but, but again you, you know the it's everything seems to be working in the background genetics yeah i mean there i mean there was these theories about a particular gene foxp2 i think right. that was associated with language um it i don't know what ever happened to that theory actually <laughs> yeah i, I mean indranild is is that still a thing i still think it is because i think a couple of years back uh, this group from france they looked into uh, i think they did some sort of mris on a neanderthal uh, skull right and well the entire uh the the neanderthal uh, skull as well as the vocal tract and i think they started to basically say that well even neanderthals had sort of vocalization because you know the larynx had already kind of dropped because yeah. of gravity and typically i think we think of language and speech as a much later development yeah. but it seems that it may have come from uh, it we, we may have had it for longer than we actually yeah. give ourselves credit for yeah yeah so it's likely therefore that that there may be some kind of an expression right uh, yeah. at the genetic level yeah um yeah but but the theory is alive and kicking yeah i, I think uh, i think definitely neanderthals have fox p2 right um and you know at the same time you know songbirds were shown to have fox p2 as well in particular centers where the where the song is is generated so that may be one basis of kind of being able to produce speech and interpret it as well but um but perhaps you when you hear something and which is the link between reception and production or the deafness question that we were dealing with mm. and perhaps when you hear bat you kind of have a feel for all the pitch and tonality and intonations and so on and then you try to produce it through whatever apparatus you have and through trial and error or whatever you get there perhaps it's a little bit like but again yeah yeah i mean i think the question that we should be asking is is it an analytical process do you yeah. take in the acoustics decode it figure out what went into producing that or does it come bundled together it's just that the child is there uh, sort of uh, you know they're still sort of developing their ability to coordinate uh, the structure visual cues help so if if i but to put you behind a dark screen or whatever and you it was not audible that you were saying bat and the child heard bat for the first time from and you know the visual cues and how your lips moved and so on was not visible would it make it dramatically more difficult for i imagine so yeah i imagine so yeah because the child is unanalytically associating the acoustics with the actions in the world mm-hmm. uh it doesn't have it doesn't get to see inside your mouth right uh and so it's sort of it can feel its own tongue so that's why i'm talking about proprioception so yeah. it can kind of feel its articulators inside its mouth and it it kind of it, knows that if i did this 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 and this then that's going it's going to produce this effect so uh, it so yeah it, it enhances the awareness of which is proprioception of your own thing and you try that and it works which probably goes to the question of is speech and sound and meaning and all this multisensory um so when you say sound you know the next stage is speech and then you say okay we make 
sense out of that? What are there are there more senses involved typically? Yes, at least two more uh, that we have uh, seen. Uh, so um, definitely the visual, right? So if there is any kind of mismatch between the auditory and the visual uh, cues, then generally there is disruption in the perception process. Uh, and more recently, uh, a couple of my colleagues and and is that is that something which is always the case, or that sometimes the case? Um, and and if it is sometimes, then why is it only sometimes? To a limited degree, I think it shows that evolution, from an evolutionary perspective, uh, these modalities must have been integrated uh, as speech got more specialized. Uh, it it differentiated itself, but we still notice that we continue to gesture despite the fact that it's a symbolic system. We don't really need to gesture anymore for all intents and purposes. But evolutionarily, to- does uh, the speech? production follow being able to see um like would the visual organ come see it's the speech organs or speech apparatus i think that may be a kind of recent recent link up i mean in in um in because uh vocalization you can you can kind of conjecture that mating calls of frogs for example or or bird song um are kind of a, some level of vocalization as well, um, and frogs certainly kind of will will croak and have a mating call without being able to see other frogs. Similarly, with birds, you can you know they'll sing a song to attract a mate without really seeing seeing the mate. I mean, but do the do the simpler organisms or the unicellular organisms and so on produce sound? Like I think the question is that do you end up getting Eyes before ears, or eyes before the vocal tract, uh, whatever that means. Because <laughs> I know this is anthropomorphic or whatever. <laughs> there's, there's so many different kinds of organisms out there, and it's kind of silly to say whether an algae or whatever something. Yeah. But further down the line, has I mean, I mean, definitely where where you see them, and so you know, if we kind of broaden the definition of the ear as any any kind of mechanical sensing organ, so you, you know, going back to that vestibular organ that senses gravity then that the ear i mean the sense the mechanosensory organ and the eyes come up at about the same time and you can you can see them in uh, jellyfish for example so really way down uh, at the at the base of the tree of life the kind of formation of hearing or audition has come kind of independently in many different branches of the of the tree of life and so for example you know we any animal that uses um, a sound to to call for mates has a well-developed auditory system. So crickets, for example, um, cicadas, um, all kind of produce sound. They have a distinctive call as well, um, which is interpreted by, of course, the other cicadas or other, other crickets. And then we see it coming up again in fish, in amphibians, in the vertebrate lineage, in fish, in, in amphibians, and so on. And so, kind of the audition has come up many, many times in evolution by different different means. And it, and it primarily, I think, is involved in calling for mates, um, the ability to learn then songs, and in the same way that we learn how to speak, you know, has been shown in finches for example in, right. in, and and so on so so this um 
that there is a kind of nice evolutionary trajectory going on. And are there other on this tree of life, other complex organisms and animals where you expect to see hearing and speech production, but you don't find it? I mean, I would. So yeah, yeah, I, I would, I would expect to see it in cephalopods. Hmm. Um, and there's no, there's no real indication that octopi and squid really kind of communicate by sound. And so the reason I say that is that they have a highly developed mechanosensory structure, which is so highly developed that I don't think that it should just be used for balance. But then, of course, I'm imposing my own biases on the <laughs> on the poor squid or the octopus. Um, but perhaps, yeah, perhaps they're more evolved than us. Well, perhaps they've they've tr transcended <laughs> perhaps the next level. <laughs> transcended the need for speech. And they're communicating by telepathy, <laughs> <laughs> which would explain all of these prophetic octopuses that come up in the, and during the World, World, Cup. World Cup. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you, Neil. You were, you were talking about the multisensory part. Oh, no. Um, yeah, I mean... Uh, and you probably implied the McGurk effect somewhere. Right. And coming, I mean, coming back to the octopus, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the tongue is essentially like an octopus tentacle because it's, uh, it's the only muscle in our uh, body that's not attached to a bone. Mm. And so it's sort of interesting how, you know, we, we went one way <laughs> with it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, so the... Um, what we see, yeah, McGurk effect is one one such, right, where where there is an expectation that the visual and the uh, auditory uh, modalities are going to have some kind of consonance, and when they don't, then it kind of disrupts uh, the uh, perception, right? Uh, similarly, recently we have found that there is a kind of a tactile integration. So if, uh, so colleagues in uh, uh, in Canada uh, they're basically able to show that if you if you have a per per distinction, uh, then uh, during the time that you're hearing a per, uh, if I gave you some kind of tactile input uh, with an air jet and made made you feel a little bit of a puff of air, uh, then subjects were well, on my on my neck or anywhere yes, uh, on your neck as well as uh, the space between your uh, thumb and the index finger. So 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 there is. So if you put an air jet on my neck or between the thumb and my index finger, uh, the purr becomes purr. That's right, yeah. <laughs> is, is that okay? But, I mean, it, that's what happens. I mean, the whole point of science is to basically state the obvious. Um, <laughs> and so I'm just stating the obvious that it happens. So we are trying to figure out whether we can also do the purr-burr thing, right? So at the moment, we are devising an experiment where we are going to use a, uh, you know, these cell phones have these uh, motors, like the vibratory motors. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to try and see if that, uh, we because we want to be able to give a tactile. So the thing about the air jet is that it's not touching your skin. So it, you can do it from distance from like five millimeters away. But the vibration thing is a little too obvious because I can't really make you feel that the phone is vibrating or the motor is vibrating without making you touch it. And the paradigm is that, well, you shouldn't have to touch it. <laughs> so we're trying to figure out whether I can make you hear a burr when I actually make make you hear a burr, but also give you some vibration, right? So that would entail that you, the vocal fold vibrations that that accompany burr, you integrated that from uh, the outside, so from the, uh, from the, mo from that motor, so. 
what is your guess on why that happens? Uh, I'm thinking maybe I'm, I mean, at some point of time, I guess there probably was some sort of integration in these modalities for survival, probably made us fitter in some ways. And I don't know whether what the time frame of this was, whether it was following development of speech and language, complex sort of symbolic systems, being able to operate on them, do computation on them, or whether it was prior to that. Are there other language groups where there's no bha? Uh, bha? Yeah, bha. Yeah, so, so the, if the vast we, majority if, of them if, don't have them. Yeah, so if you ran this experiment on this bha experiment, they would not, do they hear bha? No, they won't. They won't. They right? won't. I mean, you have to have it in. You have to uh, have it right. in the inventory to for it correct. to be triggered. Correct. Correct. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to hear it at all. So, yeah. What do you think is happening, Raj? I yeah, I I I think it could be, um, so many different kind of um things to test here. I mean, it, this only happens when you edge at the the neck and the right. and the web. Right. The, the, yeah, yeah. Right. The thumb web. Yeah. yeah. The thumb web. That's where it's been tested. Okay. Okay. So I mean, one the, sort of one place where, which is sort of, uh, I guess geographically closer to where it's actually produced yeah. versus another place where yeah. it's not. I mean, closest. You know, in, in the neck, you can imagine that there's a there's some reflex that causes some some muscle in the ear to mm-hmm. to contract or to to twitch that. Um, modifies the way you right. we hear. I mean, right. our our ears aren't kind of perfect. Kind of, um, they're not perfect microphones. Um, I, mean, I mean, the fact that you know the the sound has to go through this little tube, you know, causes you know it can cause kind of quite dramatic spectral distortion, I guess, and then um, transmitted through you know the middle ear and then into the into the cochlea. The frequencies are deconvolved along the along the basilar membrane. You know, all of this kind of is is cool, but it you know it's quite inefficient as well. Uh, and so, I feel like any any perturbation in this process anywhere, kind of where the sound should travel, could have these effects. And if, like you say, there's a there's this what is it phonetic magnet or mm-hmm. yeah effect going on as well, then you know the way that we perceive these sounds kind of get channeled if there's a if they're a little bit off. Yeah, it's getting classified that way because yeah. this example where if you don't have the inventory of burr, then you don't hear burr. Yeah. So, yeah. So there is uh, there's something going on in the brain rather than prior to that. Of who knows? Yeah. Most, yeah, because I mean, yeah. even the per burr distinction, right? It's very low amplitude because the vocal fold vibrations basically are very, very low amplitude. So it's it's mostly sort of you know vibrating through our cheeks and stuff, yeah. right? So it's barely like like twenty dBs or so. Yeah. So it's very hard to actually, unless you were doing you know you know listening in on other stuff, you wouldn't be able to actually pick it up. Yeah. So. So there's always some sort of coordination, uh, I think, between sound segments uh, with each other uh, to constantly be uh, expecting, anticipating, you know. Uh, and as Raj was saying, that we were sort of talking about it, how, I mean, essentially, even in, if you think about inefficiency, I mean, the articulators are also, therefore, quite inefficient. Yeah. Right? Because they're essentially Would mechanical. you say that the process of hearing is kind of confirmatory, especially if I'm hearing you speak? 
then I've already pre-classified it and I kind of know you're about to say bhar and you, so you know I'm kind of ready with the answer and it gets confirmed when the process is done as opposed to Absolutely yeah. yeah you you were already uh, you you've already you know fired up all your sort of linguistic mechanisms you were expecting yeah, to go there's a very high way. probability candidate I mean right. at least there's some kind of a candidate list or leaderboard ready right and, right and right. which is where if you spring a surprise at the very last minute or something it right just starts it but it's it's the more efficient way to go about life on a day to day basis so we can see we can see this kind of stuff like when you do sort of social phonetics research where mm-hmm. where we can change the perception let's say uh, at a social or any other sort of level right and and we superimpose you know acoustics from let's say another uh, right so let's say if you take an african american person and make them speak you know as you as this person speaks right and the auditory sort of stuff is let's say some sort of canadian english or whatever then immediately people start to react to that because they they think that oh this is you know this 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 face will not produce this yeah right? yeah so so we we see those kinds of effects all the time in uh, what would be considered sort of socio phonetics uh, where we where we uh, but that's know. kind of a mild dissonance for starters and if i hear a black person speak confluent perfect pronunciation in bhojpuri it would be like very weird for a bit oh yeah but, yeah but then yeah i mean there's no mystery there after it is i imagine that it is also this is true for listeners who are not used to a lot of variety i think my my sense is that you know so uh a lot of our studies in sort of psycholinguistics and uh speech uh sorry, especially this uh, psycholinguistics not just the speech parts it's sort of done on what are called weird populations that tend to be you know sort of why they're called w e i r d i forget what the acronym stands for but essentially it's undergraduate kids from you know us uh, universities <laughs> and so they are a particular population so when you when you do experiments <laughs> when when you do experiments with them then all that stuff doesn't replicate uh, so in some ways i think that a lot of the social phonetic stuff is also essentially who haven't had that broad an exposure correct, to correct. different yeah phenotypes uh, but it, but it does sort of go, go it goes to show that we do seem to be sensitive to some notion of a whole body linguistic perception as opposed to just sort of focusing on the acoustic channel right and it so. also seems to suggest that there is a kind of schema or inventory that somehow we are always building with all the experiences and exposure that we have every day and the more you're exposed to Correct. the fewer these dissonances or whatever would be which is kind of natural once you once you say it right and um, and Uh, presumably that compensatory mechanism that i talked about because right. ultimately speech is basically important language is important all this stuff is not right. so therefore all this uh, stuff that's basically noise should get filtered out unless unless you make an exper- you know create an experiment where this is supposed to be highlighted interesting rajan why don't you change tracks a little bit and think of links if any between speech um and its perception and other higher cognitive functions you you, you think there's a link between the two what exactly is speech doing more broadly to the to the broader idea of being and this broader idea of being human and a body and so on yeah. just broadly living in the world yeah i mean i mean definitely there's a there's a there's kind of a well characterized link between hearing and higher cognitive functions i mean um schizophrenics tend to present the first symptom they present with is auditory hallucinations and so it's um 
I, I mean, which I, is not deafness. They just hear something else. Yeah, they they just hear something, um, and when then or they hear something else, um, and then I, I mean that that's interesting, and that it'll be fun to chat to you about that intranet as well. But also in um, in dementia as well, there's a kind of very tight link between deafness and de- dementia as well, and this may be that um, you know, f- for example, when you start when old people start losing their 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 hearing um doctors um, will tell them where your hearing aid where your hearing aid because it seems like you always need an auditory soundscape to keep the nerves ticking over to keep um to prevent you sliding into a fresh channel somewhat keeps refreshing your schema yeah something like that yeah yeah. so but it, it there there is a kind of tremendous link between you know, elderly people who don't use hearing aids and, and cognitive decline. It's almost like breath. It kind of rejuvenates you all the yeah, time. Yeah, no? yeah, 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 yeah. But it, it's kind of strange that it is. You, you need this kind of constant auditory soundscape to to keep your, you know, to stop you declining cognitively. Why is it the case? Yeah, I, I, I suspect it's kind of all of this, you know, everything that we've been talking about, the fact that, you know, we do, communicate we need to understand our our environment we need to kind of hear people we need to hear kind of what you know whether there's potential predators and prey and and all of this and when we can't maybe the brain just doesn't care anymore it just thinks that you know we're we're gonna decline anyway and so let's let's start shutting systems down i i don't know i i'm i know that you know, there's a huge amount of research happening yeah, on so this. So in this fight or flight, it's a kind of like the flight response when you give up. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. A, well, it's, it more, of a, it's more like a sync response, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I mean, maybe, Indranil, you, you, you have some kind of from the... Um, I don't know whether we can sort of think about it in terms of neuroplasticity or not. Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, you know, use it or lose it. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know the brain has other things to do, right? And and if you're not going to use it, then it could potentially be used for other stuff. And if there is no other stuff, then that's a different matter. But, uh, but so you j- hallucinate when you don't have the real stuff. Like is that the case? Um, yeah, I mean illusions are kind of in some ways uh, interesting, right? Because uh, I don't know if you guys saw the uh, the Yanni and Laurel, the Yanni and Laurel thing it came out a couple of years back. No. It was basically a Twitter uh, poll, right? And uh, it basically showed how people have selective attention towards certain types of frequencies. So the same uh, acoustics, right? Which if you concentrate on uh, the lower um, uh sort of frequencies then you get one kind of so there in a, in a in a classroom if you play this then you know half of the students will hear yani and the other half will hear laurel oh so it's it's basically about sort of selectively attending to certain types of certain parts of the frequency right certain parts certain resonances and not attending to the others so we already have a sort of a selective mechanism in place right which allows That's us the to the whole crazy area of attention Correct, correct, right. So the whole sort of the cocktail party phenomenon, we're, you know, language is special and we're very, very focused on it. So when that doesn't happen, I think that, there, you know, that's a huge prerogative, right? If you, if you start to lose that, then, then, you know, a lot of your purpose, I suppose, is lost. 
So uh, I don't know how illusory mechanisms actually come about in the brain, uh, but I'm assuming that... Uh, but yeah. if there were to be a cause-effect link, and these things are always systemic and more complex than that, mm. um, do you think um, there's a cause-effect link between the two? Like if one retain one's language abilities and so on, then does it somehow delay cognitive decline? Is it the other way around? So, so definitely, if um, maybe not language ability per se, but but definitely hearing. Um, yeah, so, if you're yeah. if you're able to retain hearing, it definitely stems cognitive decline, and so that that's been shown. Does it not hold for like the written word, orthographic stuff? I mean, obviously, that's man-made, made-up stuff. <laughs> it's yeah, not natural. Yeah, it, it it's certainly symbolic it, yeah. and. Yeah, literal and effort intensive and all that. Yeah, it, 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 surprisingly, it doesn't. I, I mean, of course, you can you can present an argument that you know people who read um, tend to not suffer from cognitive decline as fast as those who don't read, uh, and so there is a correlation there. But but is reading always uh, followed by a form of inner speech? Mm. Um, yeah, I, I would I would I would think so. Yes. It's concomitant with that, more or less. Like uh, right. So we actually have evidence of. It, it, it's, yeah, it's reading is this premeditation thing we started off with. Correct. In, a way. Yeah. in fact, it's it's a little past the premeditation stage. So we can kind of see micro effects of the articulators moving, uh, even when you're reading. So mm. you you can kind of it's at a muscular level. There's yeah. a little bit of a twitch. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, some kind of subarticulation. You don't go all the way to articulating correct. it, but a lot right. of other stuff happens. But the, but the fact that the motor cortex is firing, we can, so if you do like, you know, ultrasounds, like let's say of the tongue, and even when, you, when you're reading, silently reading, you can kind of see that the, the tongue is kind of in a, it's in a position to be able to do those things, yeah, right? it's ready. Right. So, um, yeah, so it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's, it's, that's been shown, especially, uh, you know, for vocal folds and so on, uh, you you can kind of see that they're in a position to do, you know, articulate at at a moment's notice. Uh, definitely for that, yeah. Um, so amazing. What are the open questions in your world, Raj? So I think it really is kind of how then um, we do integrate all of this, kind of the auditory perception part of all of this, which I think both of us have kind of highlighted um, is really not particularly well understood. And so there is a lot of multimodal integration that's happening, mm-hmm. um, in particular words. And, you know, when you emphasize particular words and particular sentences using hand gestures, how are those kind of integrated in how you're perceiving speech? Um, I think those are kind of huge questions that are still open. Um, the illusions, you know, why, why do schizophrenics get auditory hallucinations first? It's kind of a, a very interesting question. And, you know, one one thing that we didn't touch on was music as well. And so kind of processing music, kind of that anticipation of beat and, and so right. on. Um, those are kind of really interesting questions. Music and, is really anything that is anticipatory. Like that, I think that famous Goethe thing, right, that when you counting but you don't know that you're counting that's when you're listening to music i mean there is a sense of anticipation built in yeah yeah and kind of recent you know recent studies have shown that you know lots of animals have that kind of ability to catch a beat and so neurons will spike 
when a beat is anticipated. Uh, and so that, you know, those kind of are kind of cool things to be thinking about and understanding how how then the these pathways the are more controlled. mechanistic level when you work with like the uh, inner ear, hair cells, and so on. Um, are there are there breakthroughs nearby? I don't know whether they've already happened. I obviously have no clue. Where you can just you know cure deafness? Why should anybody be cured? Just here are these hair cells, this plant. Here's the implant. Like, is it is it possible for deafness to like fully go away? Uh, I don't know if there are like a few major causes, and there could I mean, be. I mean, deafness is almost. Uh, I mean, the ability to, for for deafness to go away is there. I mean, if your cochlear implant technology is advanced now, that you can hear up to about eight eight to sixteen different tones. This doesn't seem like much, but it is enough to give kind of. The, the person um, reasonable appreciation of music, in fact. Um, and so I, I expect in terms of cochlear implants that, you know, they'll, they'll become much more finer, that those patients will be able to kind of distinguish, you know, tonalities and modalities. Can we enhance our own auditory range, like even uh, the non, non-deaf people? Can we, like, do something, some implant, something which makes us hear things on both I mean the way subsonic the, and yeah we'd we'd just have to transpose it to a, a kind of um a particularly audible frequency or we'd have to I think that's the way you would do it. You know, the things that are really high you would just transpose to within within a frequency range. I mean But then you'd hear the same frequency that you hear anyway. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's not about of, detection. Yeah. But how does that frequency sound which I today can't hear? Now yeah, obviously yeah. our apparatus is yeah, 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 me- yeah. meant yeah. to yeah. <laughs> produce and Yeah. So so definitely uh, you know, our frequency ranges are constrained by our by our biology and our, our uh, are our vocal tracks to hearing apparatus synchronized in the sense that uh developmentally can you look at one and say, yes, this is mapped to this and so on? It's kind of, I don't think anyone has done it. Um, I, I mean, the fact that, you know, you can hear me speak does say that, you know, at least um, the frequency range in which we speak in is 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 mapped to the ear. But I'm sure that that's, you know, kind of some fine tuning that's happened over evolution as well. You know, there are animals such as bats. Yeah, back to the bat. Yeah, which kind of navigate with ultrasonic hearing, you know, ultrasonically. Is that, is that, is that, that's not the ear. That's another way of perceiving sound. But yeah. Yeah. So so with bats, it's the ear. What What is a ear? Um, what is the ear? Yeah. Yeah. Are there other ways of perceiving vibration in the environment which don't yeah. go through this ear mechanism? Yeah, yeah. So the, I mean, dolphins kind of do perceive... And they kind of filter their when they when they're hearing these kind of um, this ultrasonic reflection. It's actually filtered through skull bones, and they they feel the vibrations there. It doesn't go via anything called or anything like the uh, no no. It's bypassing that in a sense. It's bypassing that, but um, I I think that's a kind of specific circumstance there, and and vibrations in general can be felt. Um, in different places apart from the ear. Um, and even, even amongst us as humans, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. When you hear a drum beat, 
I mean, even if you just shut your ear, you can still experience something, a kind of proprioception. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's going to be proprioception, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. What are the open questions in your world? And we'll end with that, Indranil. What would you love to figure out? Where this headed? What is something tantalizing, yeah. nice, deep? We, we, you know, we we brought up telepathy a couple of times, right? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in um, relation to octopuses, I I, I want to add. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now I think there's there are studies which are basically showing again because of the fact that when you're hearing me, your motor cortex is firing. So essentially, with, what that means is that if I set you up with a EEG, uh, or and I'm in short distances able to basically transmit uh, your thoughts to me directly. That's right. Yeah. So but th- those it, would be the simpler. Right. It's been shown that it it can be done for very short distances now. Uh, I think the in we will see how like, short is short. Like what needs like, to be like in the same close. room. Yeah, this close. Yeah, this close. So so what that I mean essentially it's the same impulse. But this is not like context independent and all that. Like one would. It would work in a like you can't read, um, right? The word harang in my mind if if I didn't want you to like if 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 it was like cat bat and mat sure, right, right. So it's it's I mean it's not it's very very nascent right now because you 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 know yeah the, the open question would be basically what's happening in the next five hundred years right yeah. So in the next five hundred years, I'm pretty sure that we can expect that we will be able to actually have some do kind this. of telepathy. I'm this, pretty sure, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm pretty sure that something like that would happen. Yeah, that's so amazing, right? Because of the fact that we've already, we have already started to see it uh, in in very, 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 very limited uh, contexts, right, and very short distances, right, and also you would need the hardware to be able to do that, right? So, uh, to be able to transmit this information. So, and also we really don't know how to think in a sense that how do you, how do you think in language, right? We don't know that yet. So if if we if it had to be sort of complete telepathy, then you would have to develop a different grammar off that, right? You would have to figure out, oh, I'm going to sit and just think I want you to hear. Uh, right now, I can just speak and you can hear, right? So it would it would be a totally different kind of a mechanism, I would think. Yeah, but if if it does take off, then it would be telepathy. How how many years is that? That seems 20, quite close. Twenty-three point five. Okay, okay, in a year. Yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> this will be. No, this will be. And should May. tell us the release date. Of, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's May twenty forty-six. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the hardware shouldn't fail. I think the you know the the software is is almost there. So you can <laughs> you can imagine you can imagine meeting rooms in yeah. kind of various government buildings, yeah. kind of kitted out with this with this kind of mind reading apparatus surveillance. Yeah, yeah. Surveillance of another kind. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, you truly cannot have, you know, bad thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that any of us do. Yeah, not that any of us do. <laughs> yeah. That's nice and dystopian. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's. I mean, hopefully, I don't know if it'll go in that direction, but. <laughs> but no, for me, good. I think that's the important question to understand how, at this stage, how we are able to do production perception. Articulation, all in a unified manner, with the different modalities. You know, as, as long as is, this is there, you know, who knows what's happening in the next five hundred years? Right? Absolutely. No, that's a good note to end on. Thanks to both of you for making it, and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you for coming. <laughs>